Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, it's Michael Kingswood, and it's story time. I am recording this later than normal. It's Friday afternoon as I do this. Uh, normally would have this out to you on Monday. But I, uh, and last week, I drove away. I left San Diego. I went up to Vegas Wednesday evening, and I was there until late, 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 late Wednesday night this week, early Thursday morning. And the reason I went up there is because uh, two reasons. Primary reason was for the annual anthology workshop that WMG Publishing puts on, and they go and have about 40, 50 writers come up for it. It's kind of a cool concept. They, uh, in the month of January and, and December, uh, they put six writing prompts out there, one for each anthology idea, and you write six short stories in a week. Six short stories in the span of six weeks, so one per week, and send it in. At the end of January, when all the uh, writing's done, everybody gets everybody else's short story, and everybody reads everybody else's stuff. So you get it. This year, we had 1.3 million words to read in February, and show up in the end of February, first week of March, with the editors, the editors who are actually putting together the anthologies. And they go, and in front of everybody, the entire, pan entire panel of editors will tell each and every person what they thought of their story. And the person who's actually putting the anthology together will pick stories to buy for the anthology. Um, and so you get to see the process. I sold a story to one of the anthologies this year, so that's cool. That's not the purpose of the workshop. The purpose of the workshop is to get a feel for how the editorial process works and why people uh, pick stories or not, what makes uh, editors tick, and primarily to realize that uh, a lot of times a story doesn't get picked is not because it's not good, it's because of you know, it reminds the editor of his dead dog from when he was 12 and you had no way of knowing that. Or, you know, he got 10 different books about puppies saving the world and yours was number 11 and your dog, dear God, not another one. Yeah! Right? Or something you have no control over. Um, the writer is being excessively self-absorbed most time, they're like, oh, you didn't take my story, I suck, I'm a worthless human being, and you may be a worthless human being, but that's not really the reason why they didn't take your story, more than likely. So that was good. Uh, the other reason I went to Vegas was shopping around neighborhoods. Uh, you see behind me the clutter, the remnants of the move that never ends that I told you about in mid-February, where, holy smokes, <laughs> getting out of that house such a pain and it's not completely unpacked here this is the new townhouse that moved the uh the x now and the kids into uh i had him kind of beating around the 
the ex Bush here on the podcast just hadn't wanted to get into it. But yeah, that's officially done. And now the house on the market. And in fact, the house sold. Uh, anyway, that that's completely done now. So yeah, while I was in Vegas, uh, got a couple different offers on the house and I got a slight bidding war going and the house sold for about 10K more than we put it on the market for in, geez, about a week of being on the market in San Diego. So I was like, oh, score. It's gonna, escrow is gonna close at the beginning of April and I have made my last mortgage payment in California and that's awesome. Um, I'm gonna pay off, won't pay off all of the legal fees that accumulated over this whole split up divorce process, but uh, a lot of them. And uh, that'll be, as much as that process sucks, we're not MAs, we're still, uh, you know, friendly and still maintain teamwork for the kids and with the kids. So that's good. And uh, we're 50 50, so on again, off again, seeing them. But I figure <laughs> during my off again time, I'm going to get the heck out of California. And so I was looking at places in the Vegas area to get to because that's close enough that it's easy to get back and forth and do stuff with the kids and stuff. But also out from under the expense and the tyranny and just general douchebaggery that is California and get back into America. And man, it's a break fresh, the fresh air every time I get out of this freaking state. So that's what's going on there. And that's what's been going on. So, yeah. Let's get back to the story, though, shall we? That's what you're here for. You don't want to hear me browse about, you know, all this stuff. Uh, passing in the night. Prelude to the Pericles conspiracy. When last we left our heroes in space, they had just brought the alien life pod alongside. The life pod made it up with their airlock. The aliens came aboard. And it was a guy's name, Bryce. I think his name was Bryce. Panicked and shot at them. Well played, sir. We'll see what happens next with that. As usual, I apologize for my unprofessional reading. Hopefully you enjoy it anyway. Uh, and I'll talk to you on the flip side. Passing in the Night. Written by me. Read by me. Part 4. The captain screamed, No! The ball of superheated gas from Bryce's rifle struck the alien in the shoulder, setting it smashing back into the bulkhead. It slumped to the ground, clutching at its wound. The alien's neighbor bounded up over to it and crashed down to render assistance. The leader and the remaining alien turned to see their stricken comrade, for a heartbeat apparently as stunned as Carlton was. Then they roared, their lips drawing back to reveal their teeth. Turning back to the humans, they seemed to coil as they dropped into low stances and advanced. Malcolm tackled Bryce, bearing him to the floor and pinning him there. Bryce's rifle went skidding away out of his reach. Stephanie stood there, a shocked expression on her face. James fumbled at the snap on his holster. Carlton found himself doing the same. Why wouldn't the cussed thing unsnap? No, shouted the captain again. She jumped in front of the advancing creatures, her hands empty, raised with palms facing them. Stop! The lead alien grabbed the captain by the throat and with one hand lifted her about 20 centimeters off the deck. It pulled its free hand back as though to punch, but Carlton saw what looked like razor-sharp claws unfolding for the points at the tips of its fingertips. 
He got his holster unsnapped and drew his slug thrower. From the corner of his eye, he saw Stephanie sighting in on the leader. Don't shoot, the captain managed to say, her voice sounding strangled. She waved frantically at them with both hands, forceful downward gestures commanding them to lower their weapons. Very reluctantly, Carlton complied, and he saw Stephanie do the same. James hadn't gotten his slug thrower out yet. Malcolm pressed his forearm into the back of Bryce's neck and his knee into Bryce's kidney, drawing exclamations of pain from him. The alien leader hissed, and its fellow stopped advancing. The leader looked at the captain for a long moment, then at Bryce and Malcolm, then at the others. Then, ever so slowly, it lowered the captain to the ground. With a bark, it released her and stepped back. The other alien stepped back as well, but its hand found the sword hilt, or whatever the thing was, over its shoulder. The alien looked ready to use it. The captain slumped backward, her hand going to her throat. She coughed heavily. Carlton moved forward to support her, but she brushed him aside. Allison, the captain said, her voice still a bit strangled. Help them. Nodding, Allison passed the video recorder off to James and, hefting her medical bag, moved toward the aliens. She hadn't gone more than two steps before the alien with the sword stepped forward again, growling with menace. She swallowed and opened her bag. Withdrawing a roll of gauze, she held it up for the aliens to see. The leader made another hiss bark in a different tone than the first, and the creature that was tending to their wounded comrade responded in kind. The medic stood and helped its fellow to its feet. The wounded alien's shoulder was bound with narrow black bands of some material Carlton didn't recognize. It looked like they had first aid under control. Allison nodded in understanding and backed up, replacing the gauze into her bag. The leader made another bark, this time with a long, drawn-out hiss at the end. The alien medic led its wounded fellow through the airlock door. The patient gave the humans a look that, had a human made it, promised extreme violence, but it allowed itself to be let out without further incident. When they left, the leader touched a button on the breast of its uniform. A soft beep sounded, and then the leader began speaking a quick succession of hisses, barks, growls, and whistles. A similar stream of alien words emanated from the button, clearly a communication device of some sort, in response. The leader bobbed its head and waited. On the camera display, Carlton saw the life pod's airlock door open again. Two new aliens stepped into the mating tunnel, pushing a large machine of some sort ahead of them. The machine hovered in the air. Despite its obvious bulk, it appeared easy to maneuver down the tunnel into Pericles' airlock. That hovering bit was a neat trick. The leader moved aside as the new pair pushed the machine through the inner door and into the center of the room. The machine hovered half a meter above the floor and was about two and a half meters long, a meter wide, and a meter and a half tall. Constructed of black metal with a transparent hinged lid on top, it had a number of what looked like controls on one end. The lid was frosted over, making it difficult to see inside. After they finished positioning the machine, the two new aliens turned and went back to the life pod. The leader stepped up to the machine and ran a hand over the lid. It was almost a caress. The strangely tender moment ended quickly. The leader straightened and turned back to the captain. It made another sound, a cross between a hiss and a growl, and gestured for her to approach. The captain nodded and, swallowing, stepped forward. Carlton noticed she was being very careful to keep her hands empty and plainly in view. That didn't seem such a bad policy, actually. Considering. The leader moved over to the machine's control panel and gestured again for the captain to follow. 
When she reached its side, it pointed to a button on the panel and looked back at her. She nodded, and the leader touched the button. A low-frequency tone sounded, and the machine slowly lowered to the floor. The leader pressed the button again, and a higher-frequency tone sounded. The machine rose from the floor, and after a moment was hovering once again. The leader lowered the machine to the floor, and then moved on to the next button. But before pushing it, the leader made a chopping motion with his free hand, and issued another bark-hiss phrase. From the way it sounded out the words, whatever they were, Carlton surmised that whatever the leader said was very important. The leader pressed the second button, and the lid cracked open. Clouds of steam poured forth through the crack. Carlton checked himself. That wasn't steam. It sank to the floor after it escaped the machine. It reminded him of melting dry ice. The leader pushed the lid fully open and reached inside the machine. It withdrew an oval object a bit larger than a baseball. It was green, streaked with yellow. It had a wrinkled, leathery texture, but appeared firm in the alien's grasp. The leader turned back to the captain and looked at her. Cradling the object in its arm, the leader gently pet it. Then, looking the captain in the eyes, the leader pressed its free hand to its belly, then to the object. An egg, Allison said softly. Stephanie gasped, and the captain's eyes widened as the truth of Allison's analysis hit home. The leader, apparently satisfied at their reactions, replaced the egg in the machine and pressed the second button. The lid shut with a solid click, and almost immediately frosted over again. Turning back to the captain, the leader withdrew a rectangular black object from behind its belt. The object was about eight centimeters long, two and a half wide, and one centimeter deep. There were three raised red areas on it. The leader pointed to the first red area and touched it. In the space above the object, a three-dimensional image appeared. The image was clearly holographic, an impressive enough feat that for a moment it distracted Carlton from what he was actually looking at, a star chart. In the lower portion of the image, a flashing green dot was visible, as well as a curved yellow line leading from the dot to a small star. Carlton knew his star charts well enough to recognize the green dot as their current location, and the small star as Sol. The aliens must have plotted out Pericles' course to determine their destination. It wouldn't be that hard to do. The leader moved its finger into the image of Sol, and a new line, this time blue, appeared leading from Saul across the chart to another, larger, star system. From what Carlton could tell about the scale, the second system was at least 200 light-years from Saul, well outside the area mankind had explored. The leader pointed at the captain, then laid its hand on the machine. Finally, it pointed to the star system at the end of the blue line. That couldn't mean what Carlton thought it meant. Could it? The captain seemed to be having similar thoughts. Sir, we can't, the leader cut her off with a mixed growl and whistle. Then again, it pointed from her to the machine to the star. The captain sighed and nodded. The leader growled quickly, then pressed the second red area on the object. The star chart disappeared, replaced by an image of the leader. It began speaking, more of the same grunts, growls, barks, and the rest. The speech cut off as the leader pressed the first area again and the star chart reappeared. It pointed at the second red area, then at the star at the end of the blue line. The captain nodded again, and the leader pressed the final red area. One dot appeared, with a strange symbol next to it. A second later, that was replaced by two dots, with a different symbol, then three, then four, all the way up to eight. Then different combinations of the symbols appeared, along with others. The image continued on like that for a minute or so, then shifted to become a continuous sequence of symbols, probably 150 characters across and 100 lines in depth. The leader whistled, 
and waved its hand above the red area. The image shifted to another sequence, different from the first. Then, with another wave, yet another sequence appeared. What in the hell was that supposed to be? The captain looked baffled also, but Malcolm's eyebrows had risen high onto his forehead. He wore an expression of awe. Catching Carlton's gaze, he spoke softly. It's their mathematics. Carlton frowned. Why was that so impressive? Then it hit him. With knowledge of the aliens' mathematics, humans could translate scientific formulas or technical specifications. Carlton would bet good money that's what those final pages of symbols were. The leader pressed the third red area again, and the image disappeared. It pointed at the red area, then pointed at the captain and the rest of the team in turn, even Bryce. Finally, with a low growl, followed by a bark, it held the rectangular object out toward the captain. Slowly, gingerly, she reached out and took it. The leader made a hiss bark similar to the one it had made earlier, and its companion backed away into the airlock. When it had gone, the leader made a strangely intricate gesture with its hands, ending with an inclination of its head toward the captain. Then it turned and strode out of the room, also into the airlock. Where's he going? Carlton asked. The entire welcoming committee moved to the inner airlock door, all save Bryce, who remained lying on the floor, despite Malcolm releasing him from the submission hold. The alien leader didn't look back, but walked straight to the life pod's airlock. The door shut quickly behind it. They all looked at each other in confusion, and no small amount of shock. Then lights began flashing in the mating tunnel, and an oscillating siren sounded. Malcolm's eyes widened, and he quickly moved to the airlock control console. He hit a button, and the outer airlock doors slid shut. No sooner had they done so than the mating tunnel detached. Through the small window in the outer airlock doors, they saw the tunnel begin to retract. Then it and the life pod disappeared, leaving nothing visible but the slowly rotating starfield. The captain rushed to the workstation and called up an exterior camera view. Nothing. She hit the intercom to the command center. Sven, where'd it go? Sven, sounding breathless, responded promptly. Just off the starboard side, Captain, moving away at about 70 meters per second. Wait. Velocity is increasing rapidly. Gain visual on the number six hole monitoring camera. Right. She called up that camera, and they all saw the life pod moving quickly away. Very soon it was too far away to make out without additional magnification, and she shifted to the forward upper camera, which Sven directed to track the life pod. Malcolm hit the control for the inner door, and it slid shut. Then he spoke. It makes sense, Captain. They would have continued on in the same direction as the velocity vector they had the instant before they detached. On the first deck, the rings rotated about 70 meters per second, so the captain interrupted him. I understand physics, Malcolm. Why the hell did they leave? Bryce, still lying there with his face pressed to the floor, sobbed. I'm sorry, Captain. I was so scared. I thought it was pulling a gun. The captain gave him a withering look. Good thing for him he couldn't see it, or he'd either turn to stone or burst into flame. Then her expression softened. Carlton was surprised by that, but not by her reply. It's all right, Bryce. We were all scared. I shouldn't have put you in that position. Bryce looked up, a grateful expression on his face. Then, wiping his nose, he sat up. Probably he didn't get the deeper meaning of that statement. Carlton was pretty sure Bryce would never see high-stress tasking again. He didn't know it, but his career had just come to a standstill, at least on this ship. Carlton cleared his throat. Am I crazy, or did they just ask us to... He stopped speaking as a bright flash on the display drew his and everyone else's attention. His eyes went wide as he realized what he was seeing. Where the life pod used to be, there was only an expanding cloud of hot gases and shrapnel. The captain hit the intercom again. Sven, 
How far was it when it blew? 500 kilometers, Captain. I'm tracking the largest fragments. They should pass well clear of us. The captain let out a breath, her expression one of relief. Very well. She switched to the shipwide intercom. Attention, this is the captain. Our visitors have departed. Resume the normal watch routine. That is all. With that, she turned back to the group. Nodding to Carlton, she spoke again. Yes, Carl, they did. They want us to deliver their eggs to their homeworld. From her tone of voice, she was just as confused as he felt. Malcolm spoke up. Probably that reading they took in the airlock is what did it, Captain. He held up a hand to forestall a retort. They got data on our atmosphere as soon as they entered the tunnel. When they got to the airlock, they also got data on our gravitation. They probably realized they couldn't survive on our ship for long and went with plan B. The eggs are on ice. Don't need the same resources they do. So at least they have a chance of preserving something of themselves. Assuming we keep our end of the deal. Why should we, James asked. We've got enough to worry about. They paid us, for one thing, Malcolm retorted. And it's the right thing to do, the captain added. She looked at the alien machine with this precious cargo and sighed. Let's get these things stowed. Malcolm, figure out what kind of power it needs and rig up something to provide it. Malcolm looked askance at her and opened his mouth to reply, but stopped after a second and nodded, saying nothing. The captain traced her fingers along the length of the artifact and pursed her lips. Carl, we're going to have one hell of a message to send. Get a draft ready for review by the end of this watch. For the rest of you, she looked each crew member in turn. As far as anyone off this ship is concerned, this never happened. No talking about it except for what is necessary for shift turnover. You're not really thinking of changing course, James sounded incredulous but also afraid. Captain shook her head, shooting him a withering look. Of course not. We don't have the fuel for that sort of adjustment. And besides, we've got passengers and cargo who need to get to Earth. When we get there, we'll turn this thing over to the authorities and they will send it home. So much for the boring center passage, Carlton said, trying to insert a bit of humor. Captain looked at him, but their expression was one of resignation. She shook her head and sighed. Space travel sucks sometimes, doesn't it? Well, that ended a lot better than it looked like it was gonna when we started this one. All's well that ends well, I guess. Uh, a little weird that the aliens blew themselves up, but nah, maybe not completely if you think about it. Just cultural differences, why they probably would. Security reasons, probably why they would. And, in reality, they probably wouldn't have been able to survive on Pericles all that long. So maybe that was just the best answer. Even disregarding all these other things, still sucks but hey at least the humans got those great presents hey great we're gonna have to watch after alien infants here soon good thing they got like an incubator so you can see why this was the prelude to the pericles conspiracy right um clearly there's a lot more than come after this uh, i cho chose not to continue the story past year because as it has been pointed out and the captain said hey they don't have fuel to uh re change course to get the uh, alien babies home um nor are they have the expertise or equipment to tr do that sort of thing so best thing they can do is go back to earth and hand it off to the authorities let the authorities take care of it and get the kids home that way um of course the question becomes what's going to happen once they get back to earth and that is the subject of the novel the pericles conspiracy uh, which I guess is what we'll get to next. 
A little background about this particular story, though. I wrote this very early on in my writing career. I started writing in the late 2010, around Christmas break, actually, then. Um, and I wrote this in the spring of 2011 because I learned about uh, the Lord of the Passing of the Night then. As I learned about the Writers of the Future contest, if you don't know, and why would you if you're not a writer, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, you probably heard of him. He was a famous science fiction, famous writer of all kinds of stuff back in the pulp era, the 20s and 30s and 40s. Um, Made a lot of money doing that. Um, science fiction basically wrote in every genre. He was particularly known for science fiction. And, of course, later on because he started the Scientology church thing. But this has nothing to do with the Scientology thing. Uh, he had an extended career as a writer and uh, you know made a lot of money. But also spent a lot of his time in his career helping newer writers get done. In the early 80s, he decided to set up a contest to further help new writers. So he set up the Writers of the Future contest for science fiction and fantasy genres. And uh, his estate continues to run it through Galaxy Press. Uh, and they, they put out all his work, but also continue the contest. Um, the concept there is it's only for non-professionals. Uh, if you're an established writer, you can't uh, enter the contest. Non-professional, by their definition, is you cannot have had published as an actually put put out there, published, um, as opposed to having sold. Because sometimes you can sell a story. Like I just sold a story at this anthology, but it's not going to be out for a year or more. So even though I have the sale, it's not published yet. So I can still, if uh, so, it doesn't count for that until it's actually published. But um, you can't have more than three professional published stories at professional rates, uh, short stories. Or if you have a novel or a novella published, that'll pro you out. Um, if indie publishing, they're basically saying one thing that has sold 3,000 copies will, will uh, punch you out of the contest. Of course, that's really hard to audit. So I'm not sure how they check that. It's easy to check professional, professional sales as currently um, defined in the various markets. So I think they're just kind of ignoring the indie thing for the time being and why not anyway so i've got two professional sales now um still not proed out so that's good and i've been there have been a number of quarters where i didn't submit to the contest but i try to submit every quarter uh the passing of the night was the first story i ever submitted to the contest first time i uh tried it and i got an honorable mention the way it works is they have you know thousands of entries each year each each quarter they do it four times a year once a quarter and um, the coordinating judge is David Farland, who's a pretty well-known fantasy writer and science fiction, but more fantasy is what he's known for. Uh, and he has an assistant, Carrie English. What she does is she takes all the slush, this, and goes through it real quick, just a quick quick and dirty, there's no chance this could ever win because you know, it was written by a 13-year-old who doesn't understand the first thing about storytelling and it was not compelling entrance at all and just easy stuff for Dave to get through so he doesn't have to... Not that a 13-year-old can't write a compelling story, but, like, obviously not going to have a, a piece that's obviously not going to have a chance. She gets rid of those and passes the rest of them to Dave. And Dave goes and reads the stories as much as he can stand to. <laughs> um, and he breaks them up into categories. There's a straight up, no, not going to happen. Then you've got the finalists. Each quarter there's eight finalists, and those get sent on to a panel of judges um, who rotate through. They're big-name people in the... And the genres, uh, Dean Smith and Chris Rush, who run WMG Publishing, who run the anthology workshops that I um, 
just came back from. Uh, their judges, Brandon Sanderson's judge, guys like Larry Niven, Jerry, per- Jerry Pornell when he was still with us, um, Kevin Anderson, a whole bunch of big name people are, uh, are judges. And uh, the judges then will look at the eight finalists and determine three winners for each quarter, first, second, third place. And then the, uh, the 12 winners for the year get put in the anthology, and usually a finalist who didn't win sometimes gets put in. And then of the three, of the four first place winners, they pick a grand prize winner, and they get some fairly good money and get published in the Writers of the Future anthology. I mean, I would say fairly good money. I mean, the grand prize winner for the year gets 5000 bucks. And that, and then they get royalties on the anthology, and so it's a really good deal. Um, but if you're not a finalist, there's 16 semi-finalists, and then he selects a bunch of honorable mentions and silver honorable, he says, which is somewhere between honorable and semi-finalist. Uh, basically, if he finishes your story, he's probably going to get you an honorable mention. And to hear him tell, only 10 or 15% of the entrants get an honorable mention. So my first ever submission was this, and it got an honorable mention. I was like, hey, I felt pretty good about that, you know? So I was definitely going to continue the story because I thought there was a lot of good uh, stuff to go into. And I had in my mind what was going to happen when they get to Earth. And I also knew it was going to be a novel. So it took me a couple of years to finish that novel, not because it took a couple of years to write it. It took me, uh, I think I said it in another video, uh, to write the Pericles Spiracy took me a total of like 79.8 hours. Of course, I was doing other things, writing other things at the same time, and family and Navy stuff. And so August of 2013, I had it finished and out into the published and go from there. And that continues on from where Passing the Night left off. But I wrote it so you don't have to read Passing the Night to understand it. Uh, I think it's a good book. Most people who have read it think so too and uh yeah, so that's it so that's what we guess we'll be reading through next in story time with michael kingswood um so stick around and we'll get into that if you don't want to get ahead of me you can buy it and you can go to michaelkingswood.com and click on the little bookstore link go to ssnstory.com to the bookstore the one link will get you the other you can find it at any of the various uh stores out there of course yeah, of course, you don't have to buy it, but if you want to, I'd appreciate it. Or just stick with me. Uh, please like, subscribe, and share your friends this podcast and video series. If you like what I'm doing, don't want to buy the books, but want me to continue the podcast and want to get some va- some money to compensate for the time it takes to do these because it does take time. This is, I generally keep these around a half hour, but it uh, takes me a couple of hours each week to do them. Um, I got a membership thing on my site now. Uh, it's like Patreon, except I control it, and I'm not going to get involved in political censorship, unlike Patreon, apparently. So, um, go there, a buck or two a month, we'll get you, you know, some short stories and get you a continuation of this podcast that you love. More than that, and we get more uh, access to more and more of my stuff um, as we go. Up to you. Regardless, thanks for coming by. Hope you enjoyed it, and I'll talk to you next week, or in this case, in just a few days. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com, where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, 
But if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mailing list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music copyright Gene Paul Zoggy, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>